Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This Ben Jarofsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. It is Friday, November 22nd, 2019, but it's a podcast, so you're listening to this whenever. Uh, as we do with all bonus segments of the Ben Jarofsky Show, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. In this case, it's a herself. So distinguished guests, introduce yourself. Hello, um, I'm Leela Taylor and author of the book, Darkly, Black History in America's Gothic Soul. Um, yeah. All right, well, welcome to the show. And let me Thank just you. say this. Uh, I got a phone call from a publicist named John. Uh, I forget uh, uh, I forget when he called me, but it was a while ago and you go, hello, mate. That's my British accent, sorry. <laughs> and he said- you, you <laughs> To all of our British listeners out there, please. He goes- Don't tune out. Uh, you gotta, uh, you gotta get this, you gotta get this author on your show. And I said, sure, you know, even though this is a show that deals with mostly political issues, uh, national political issues, Chicago political issues, uh, I have an obsession, of, can I just confess with you, oh, yeah. about the whole issue of identity, particularly racial identity, so how people identify, how they grow up, how segregated our country is, how if you're on one side of the divide, you gotta think one way, and mm-hmm. that's the only way, and if you're on the other side of the divide, you gotta think the opposite way, and you know yeah. what? There's kids who are like trying to, it's like a, sam- a cafeteria, you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, they sample different pieces of and they figure it out and I gather you were of uh, sort of that persuasion. Um, yeah, I mean, I grew up and I was fortunate in that I went to a very uh, liberal, hippie, small Quaker school in Detroit and my parents are academics. So the people I was with and the people I grew up with it was a little bit everywhere. Everybody, the school was black kids and white kids and Middle Eastern kids and Christian and Jewish and a few actual Quakers. <laughs> I was gonna say, are there any Quakers in a this couple. school? There were a couple of Quakers. Okay. Um, so <laughs> yeah. my, I was with this really diverse uh, group of people. And it wasn't until I got to, I don't know, maybe like eighth grade or ninth grade um, where I started uh, getting a little bit ostracized about the kind of music I liked and the kind of clothes I dressed. Uh, I tell a story in the little book of, um, I went to the Y, this is when I was a kid, uh, in the downtown Detroit and I was kind of used to going to very kind of multi-culty, mm-hmm. liberally kind of uh, day camps and things like that. My mom's an anthropologist and my dad's an architect, a very like NPR, PBS kind of upbringing. <laughs> and I went to this Y in the hood mm-hmm. and these girls terrified me. And I started getting called Oreo and getting made fun of because I talk white. 
or I wanted to be white or because I talk like a rich person. And um, there was this weird moment where I was like, but I'm, I'm black just like you. And just because I like Duran Duran instead of, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of what was popular. Else. What year was this? Like new edition, I guess maybe it would be one. Um, all of a sudden I was less black because yeah. of that. Um, and it was really hurtful and confusing, you know? Um, so I kind of learned kind of early on that, you know, black people have to do one thing and act one way and like certain things. But all the things that I liked are like quote unquote white people things, you know? I listen to white music and goth music and post-punk music. Well, what, okay, so when, I'm going to read an excerpt yeah, uh, yeah. that I just pumped in. I started this project with this intent of researching the black goth scene and what it was like to be a part of a subculture perceived as being quote unquote white, how it felt to navigate a world where you were twice marginalized when you're the only one in the room. So how did you find your way to this world? Was it the kids that you were hanging around with uh, led introduced it to you? Or were you one of those kids who was listening to music? Um, now I'm going to uh, date myself here. <laughs> I mean, like, you had the transistor in your ear and you were just picking up whatever was coming across. I mean, how did you find yeah. your way to this world? Um, well, Detroit had really great radio stations and really great record stores. And um, my best friend at the time, who's still my best friend, um, was really into music too. And she might've been the one who introduced me, who bought like the first Susie and the Bantus record or the first Cure record, um, or maybe I heard it on the radio. So I'm not quite sure how exactly I found it, but I was listening to the music on the radio and my friends are buying their albums. So, um, and we would go to the suburbs and get, you know, posters and buttons of Depeche Mode and things like that. So um, the culture, like the goth, kids didn't come until later because at 13 I'm not going to clubs you know mm -hmm. it's just the kids that I know in my school so it probably wasn't until um you know like junior high and high school that I started seeing a uh, culture around gothness you know um so I kind of I missed a little bit of of that part of it because uh, I was kind of I started too young and then uh, I started uh, college in Ohio, and all of the gothness just sucked right out of me. You, you abandoned it once you got to college. Yeah, I, I. So my background is graphic design, and well, even before college, uh, when I was in ninth grade, we moved from Detroit to Ohio, mm -hmm. and we were in Ohio, uh, Cincinnati, and in Detroit. I was with this great little, starting this group of weirdos, you know, anarchists and poets and, you know, guys who smoked and, you know, wore long black coats and things like that. And everybody was bi or said that they were bisexual, whether they were or not. Um, so In the with, 80s. Yeah. They yeah. were open about it. Yeah. Um, there was, there were like the young socialists would hang out outside the Sounds school. like a great school. It was a great school. Yeah. Um, so I had my little group of weirdos. Uh-huh. Um, that were all different races, black and white. Um, then we moved to Ohio, to Cincinnati, and it was incredibly segregated. And um, I didn't see weird black people. You know, I didn't see the weirdos or the freaks of color, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so it became really isolating because I didn't quite fit in with the white kids and I didn't quite fit in with the black kids. 
Um, and I think that's when, I don't know, either I kind of started to, I wouldn't say conform, but it was a weird time of me trying to figure out where I Now, were you belonged. going to a public high school in Cincinnati? Yeah, it was a public high school. And so was it, uh, were you one of the few black kids in this high school or were there a lot of black kids? It was a lot of black kids. And so are you coming? What, what year did you enter this high school? This was, I started in 92. All right, so it's 1992. What, yeah. year, you're, you're what year in high school now? Sophomore. Sophomore year of high school. Yeah. You have this moment. That any kid in an integrated high school will relate to what I'm about to say. And you walk into that cafeteria and you don't know anybody and you look in the cafeteria. And I'm sure if your high school was like every other high school in America, mm -hmm. the black kids were sitting over there yeah. and the white kids are sitting over there because yeah. Lord knows you're not allowed to sit at the same yeah, table. Exactly. So exactly. Where, where did you sit? I was in the middle, like by myself on a bench somewhere or the art room. I hung out with the art kids. So you just said, I'm not even going to deal with the, the cafeteria. I'm just going to go to the eat my lunch in the art room. I was sneaking cigarettes in the bathroom downstairs. That's what I was doing. I'll tell you what, man. There's a rough crowd. There's a, so in other words, you, you saw the choice and you opted not to take either one of the choices. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, when I went to college, I went to art school. I went to design school. Um, and I think, and again, the weirdness kind of um, got repressed a little bit. Um, and it wasn't until, and I don't think it was about conforming to anything, and I don't necessarily think it was a whiteness or blackness issue. I think it was, um, I went to a very, very um, intense design program, and I was just kind of in it. And mm -hmm. also at the time, I was going to mostly like, uh, like gay nightclubs. I was going to clubbing a lot. So it was a lot of house and a lot of techno. Um, so that was where I kind of moved. It was mm -hmm. basically, you know. Or you found your way. Now, this is outside of high school. Now, yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, high you, school. you described a moment where uh, you confronted uh, black kids. I assume they were girls at a relatively young age who said, what are you trying to be white? Yeah. Uh, did you have the other experience where white kids treated you differently like can i touch your hair or oh god yeah. uh can i just feel that a little bit yeah did you yeah. did you ever have that experience as well yeah there was this um it was such a bizarre moment in there this is in college and i was the only black person in my program um in the entire program not just my class i was the only black person and we had this program where we would do seminars and a group of kids would take a topic and they would do a talk on that topic. And the topic that this one group of kids, they're all white, white girls, was minorities in graphic design, whatever that was supposed to mean. So the day before, they came up to me in the hallway and asked me, um, they said, oh, are you going to be there for class? And I said, oh, yeah. And they said, well, we know you participate. You like to talk and discuss a lot. And I said, yeah. And one of them said, we were just wondering if you could act as black as possible. And I kind of had this speechless, what the fuck look on my face. Um, and then I just went, thanks, bye, and left. <laughs> and that was it. In that voice? <laughs> Basically. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I knew what they were getting at. Mm -hmm. I knew they wanted some kind of over-the-top over stereotypical depiction of blackness. Mm -hmm. And I don't exactly know 
which stereotypical depiction of blackness was in their head. Um, I know they weren't thinking of, you know, like Grace Jones or, you know, polystyrene or, you know, Condoleezza freaking rice. I know, I know, I know who they weren't thinking of. And I, and I went to my professor and I said, I don't want to go. I don't want to participate in this. And he was great. And he said, I don't blame you. Um, and I mean, that's just sort of one of various sort of instances. And mm. I was fortunate that in my own little social group, that didn't happen a lot. So in but, other words, yeah. did you, did the, the fortitude to block out all the messages that are constantly being beamed to kids, uh, did that come from within something that your parents talked to you about on a uh, consciously on a, uh, you know, on a regular basis? I mean, so many kids can't help themselves. Uh, Layla, they, that pressure is so intense, yeah. you, you know, that peer pressure, yeah. uh, they break down yeah. and they follow the path yeah. that they're supposed to follow. So they go hang out with the white kids. They go hang out with the black kids. Yeah. When the N word is said in front of them, they pretend like they didn't they hear it, it or they laugh yeah. it off. They yeah. go. So where did it come from? Your ability to be at peace in the world that you chose? Um, I think my parents, I think because my parents were kind of, um, you know, the perspective weirdos in their own family. Um, they were kind of outsiders. Um, my mom um, decided to become an anthropologist um, when everyone said you can be a teacher or a nurse or a housewife, you know. And she was like, I'm going to school. I'm getting a doctorate. My um, dad's an architect and an artist. You know, they both grew up um, in really small kind of poor towns. My dad in Kansas and my mom in Indiana. Um, but because they were kind of the outsiders themselves, I grew up with um, weirdness as kind of the normal. And I was surrounded by books and surrounded by art and all different kinds of music. You know, my, we were, my dad was into jazz and Monty Python, like equally, you know. Um, so I never felt... They never pressured me to be um, any specific kind of anything because they weren't any specific kind of anything. They mm -hmm. were kind of the oddballs themselves. So um, I don't think I ever felt like I had to be some kind of specific type of person. Um, I just sort of had to be the best whatever. And did you ever have a conversation was. with your parents where they acknowledged uh, that they understood that you were not following the conventional path that a black kid follows and they said, we were, they reassured you or did, that was just something that went without being said? I think it went without being said. Um, I mean, I think, I think they were more concerned with me being a black kid in America and society in general I don't think they were so worried about uh, other black kids. I don't think that was their or other work. white kids or other white kids. Yeah, I mean, really. white kids, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, you know, yeah. there was a, a movie that came out roughly that I, I just popped into my head. 
uh, roughly the same time that you would have been going to high school, but it's the exact opposite story. And it takes place in uh, Detroit and it was called Zebra Head. And I don't know if you ever mm. saw that, Michael, uh, that movie with my, uh, Michael Rappaport played a white kid who loved, he was like, a, he acted like black uh, and he had a black girlfriend. Yeah. You, you never saw this movie? It sounds familiar. And, uh, and, any, and it's, it's all about his trials and tribulations as he tries to navigate his way yeah. uh, around uh, these two worlds. So it's just an interesting uh, parallel. You're not alone. Yeah. People are entering this from different, all different arenas and yeah. avenues. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you you mentioned, so did, did you have an intent when you wrote the book, like you were speaking to other people like yourself? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... What's been really great is I've had um, a lot, mostly girls, like young black girls, um, come up to me and say, you know, thank you so much. I thought I was the only one. Um, I'm, I was the different one. I'm the weird one. Um, and it really spoke to them. And I think the thing that I kind of want to get across and I hope people get across is that the more we try to define and delineate identity and restrict what you can and cannot do and what you can and cannot like, the more you try to put people into boxes, mm-hmm. um, the more dehumanizing that is, um, the more destructive it is. Um, I think weirdness, the ability to be weird um, in public, um, I call it the privilege of frivolity. Being able to act silly or strange or be in the, you know, go to Burning Man or, you know, steampunk conventions, whatever bizarre thing you want to do. Um, if you're white, there's kind of a safety in that. There's this assumption that, oh, that there's some weird, weirdo white people and they can do whatever they want. Um, but if you're black, that can get you killed. If you are acting strange, considered strangely or being ostentatious or doing something unexpected, um, that could be considered a threat. Mm-hmm. There was a case where there was a kid at a um, like a Comic Con type thing who was playing with like a fake like ninja sword thing. So it's in the environment where everybody is in costume doing this kind of thing, and he's got a fake sword like everybody else. And maybe he was a little bit isolated. Maybe he was, nobody was around him or something. And um, cops came and shot him because they thought it was real. Or whether or not they thought it was real Mm. is kind of not really the point. The point is he was black. Tamir Rice. Yeah. Playing around with a toy gun. Baby, 12 years old, but perceived as a scary big black man who has to be shot, right? Um... So there is at like during the whole um, sort of the height in the Black Black Lives Matter movement, I started seeing on social media things like um, hashtag, you know, happy black man or posts about, you know, smiling, happy, uh, you know, black babies, you know, and all of these um, posts and tags showing. Oh, carefree black man. That was a big one. Hashtag carefree black man. Um, Showing just regular black people um, enjoy 
in states of joy and happiness and silliness. Um, and the fact that that has to be called out mm-hmm. is really, really telling. Yeah. The fact that that's different somehow, that black people are allowed um, frivolousness. Yeah. Um, and it's absolutely necessary. It's necessarily to be seen human, to have the whole range of human emotions and human experiences. Um, and as an expression. So, yeah. So when you were a kid in the 80s, you're going to your goth stage, you had the full out goth look? <laughs> as much as I could. Um, I think I was never going to look like Susie Sue, even if I kind of wanted to. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, one of the things I say in the book is that I kind of felt a little blackula-ish sometimes. Like I was a black version yeah. of the, the goth thing. Um, I mean, I'd also say that this is pre hot topic. So, um, goth was whatever it is you cobbled together with, you know, Salvation Army stuff and you dyed your own clothes black and put safety pins over everything. Um, did you dye your hair? I did not dye my hair. Um, cause it was already black. <laughs> I you could even make it, it even right. I did, darker, darker if you darker. want. I, I, I need darker. I did like spike it out, you know? Um, a uh, lot of lot of eyeliner, a lot of black uh, nail polish, like rings on every finger. And your parents saw this, and they were cool with it. Yeah, I didn't care. <laughs> they were fine. God bless your parents, man. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, and um, I I just remembered a goth phase uh, of existence. It, it was so a friend. I remember a friend. I'm so much older than you, so I would have been your parents' age. And I remember a friend of mine whose daughter was heavily into the goth thing and walking in to meet her and just knowing just to be cool. You know what I'm saying? But then I'm like, God damn, look at that kid. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, hey, how's it going? And now, you know, well, she's, I mean, she's a mother her own, you know? Yeah, yeah. uh, that happens. Um, what are some of the, I, I wrote down, I asked you this before, uh, some of the cultural influences that you've had uh, in your life that sort of led you, you know, that reached through to you and touched you. And you, you named a bunch of them, and I would yeah. love to run through and talk about them. The first one you named was Denise Huxtable. Yes. Talk about that. My hero, Lisa Bonet in general, my hero. Um, I, uh, Cosby, the whole thing just breaks my heart, but the Cosby show. You watched the Cosby show as a kid in Detroit. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It was the first time I saw a family on TV that looked like my family. Um, I mean, I loved loved good times. You know, I loved um, what's happening. Um, But the Cosby show was the first time I saw... um, you know, parents who were professionals and kids who were like good students in their lovely brownstone apartment. Um, you know, a dad who was into jazz who went to college. <laughs> so they looked like my family. And Denise was kind of like me. Like I was kind of the weirdo with the weird clothes and the tons of layered stuff and the weird hats or whatever and doing bizarre things to my hair. Um, so she was sort of this super cool idol you know and they lived in new york she went to the village um so yeah she was um i would say i was listening to Susie sue but i wanted to be 
Denise Huxtable. <laughs> now, I was, uh, confession time, yeah. uh, I was not a huge fan of the Cosby show, uh, but I know the characters in yep. the Cosby show, so I'm asking you a question here utter, out of utter ignorance, so sure. just excuse my ignorance. No worries. Uh, in the show itself, Denise Huxtable, Lisa Bonet's character, did she have white friends? Did she? There might have been. I'm trying to think of like how I'm trying to think of, sh- of instances where she was hanging out with friends. Oh, she had a black friend. Um, and they also went did the spinoff when Denise went to college, a different world. And that was a black college. That was a historically black college. Um, I don't remember. I don't remember. I so, don't remember white people on the Cosby show. I know. I don't. Need, so I'm, I'm wondering and help me with this. Yeah. Why do white people like that show? Because because uh, of Bill Cosby, because he was sort of this safe, um, warm, funny guy. That's called irony, folks. Uh. Oh, God, it's so painful. Oh, betrayal. Um, uh, I don't know. It's funny. I was doing a presentation, and I was uh, I had a picture of of you know Denise, the character, and um, uh, I was I sent around a bunch of people I knew who were all white. It was mostly white people. These are people that I worked with. And I said, what, what does this picture mean to you? And most people didn't even recognize her, um, didn't recognize the character, you know? Um, and they had vague memories of like, oh yeah, I kind of I remember that. So I think, I think it probably had a bigger impact on black girls. Then. It was the number one most popular show in America for many years, yeah. and I, I can't. I have to confess, I don't think I've ever watched one episode of it, yeah. so I can't figure out why it was so popular. Because if it's yeah. number one, it's more than black people watching it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was a well written family sitcom. You know, it made people feel good. It made people feel good. It so was... it didn't matter that uh, Denise didn't have white friends. No. No, I don't think so. I think it was, um, you know, a good middle of the road, popular. So they never show. dealt with the issue of whether Denise was too white or too black. She's going no. to the village. No. You know, that's kind of white. I'm just yeah, saying, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, no. Everything kind of happened in that house. It was all about what was going on in that Like house. the outside world didn't even intrude. Yeah, which is kind of like, if you looked at, like, you know, the Roseanne show, everything's kind of in that house, you know? It was kind of one of those family sitcoms. So um, it really was more about that dynamic, but I never, I don't actually recall. Also, I know that um, if there was an episode that had to deal specifically with whiteness and blackness on The Cosby Show... That would have been big. Yeah. That would have been difficult and big, and that would have been a specialist episode. That would be like Cosby Ellen show. coming out on her show. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, that was a few years after the Cosby show. All right, another one that you've listed, which is so different than Denise Huxtable, is Strange Fruit, the song that Billie Holiday yeah. uh, made famous, Yeah, uh, which is a song about a lynching. Mm-hmm. Um, what, how does that... Yeah, how's I that think, fit in? I think it's the most goth song ever. If there's an American goth song, I think it's Strange Fruit. It's her voice, 
her voice, first of all, has this, it's kind of strange, it's this ethereal quality to it. Um, and the song, it's a beautiful song, with these pastoral lyrics about, you know, the scent of magnolias, um, with horrific, horrific imagery, like the smell of burning flesh. Um, so you have, I think, this combination of beauty and horror mm-hmm. is very gothic. Um, and the fact that it's based on actual real event of a lynching in Indiana of two men um, is a thing that kind of really, really drives it, drives it home. And I remember when I, I'm embarrassed to say this a little bit, but I think the first time I ever heard it was the Susie and the Banshees remake. I think that's the first time I ever heard it. I was young. I was very yeah. young. Okay. And it just, I didn't, I didn't pretty like it. it I, I, I heard it and I was like, okay, whatever. It kind of sounded like, yeah, this sounds kind of like a Susie and the Banshees thing. Um, wasn't my favorite song on the album. Um, I, but, now I have to confess, I've yeah. never heard Susie and the until you mention her name, a oh, yeah. moment of apology. I never even heard of them. So I not know that. Was it obvious from their song that they were singing about a lynching? Not at all. Not at all. Um, no. And I think because it was, you know, they're a British band, and a lot of their songs had kind of spooky, kind of macabre, gory lyrics in it anyway. Um, but when I heard the Billie Holiday version, Now, how'd you find your way to Billie Holiday's version? I think probably my parents probably had it. It was probably an album on the shelf, you know? Um, um, like, again, I don't remember if it was the radio. I don't remember, you know, picking it. But I remember being, I remember being young enough to think that her voice was kind of weird. Um, like, it was unusual to me. And, um, and it was creepy. It was creepy. But it wasn't until I got maybe a little bit older, like high school, you know, and, and kind of heard it again after many, many years that it really, really hit me. Um, and it's disturbing and it's creepy and it's haunting. Um, even now, I've listened to it so many times and it still gives me, gives me chills. Um, and her performance of it was, um, I mean, of course, I've never actually seen her performance, but in the writing of it, um, it was always the last song of the set. She always closed the set with, um, with Strange Fruit. Um, no applause, because it had this very reverent quality to it. Um, all the lights would be turned off, so there was just one spotlight on her. Um, so this very theatrical, almost kind of religious experience of this, this song. Um, and then I saw the pictures. I saw the, because it's based on Abe Mirapol wrote the poem. Um, uh, and that poem then became the song Strange Fruit, which he gave to Billie Holiday to sing. And he was inspired by a photograph of the lynching. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people would... Uh, there were whole families would gather around to see, you know, men hanging from trees um, and burning and being, you know, tortured. And they would take pictures of them and like sell them as postcards, oh, as yeah. souvenirs. Um, I'm looking for the lyrics right now. That's what yeah. I'm doing. I, w- I would love to, for you to uh, re- we spent so much time talking about this strain. Here we go. Yeah. Um, uh, do you want to read the? I, th- I think it would be sure. better if you read it. Than <laughs> this is, here we go. I'm reading over. A strange fruit. I'm not going to sing it. 
southern trees bear, bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Pastoral scene of the gallant south, the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth, scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh, then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here's a few fruit for the crow to pluck, for the rain to wither, for the wind to suck, for the sun to rot, for the trees to drop. Here is a strange and bitter crop. Wow. Yeah. Mr. Mirapol. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, and again, I actually don't know if I saw the photograph first or heard the song first, mm -hmm. but it became, they became one in the same, you know? Um, so yeah, the Susie and the Bantus version just pissed me off then. Just, <laughs> I don't, I, I haven't even heard it, I don't like it, and, yeah. And I love Susie Sue, I really do. I yeah. love Susie and the Bantus, but, um, but to me, it's, it's just the most American Gothic piece of art. Um, that now, we have. did you ever have a moment where you introduced a friend to Strange Fruit? Like you told them, you know how friends are always yeah, yeah. passing books or songs to each other. Did you ever have a moment like that? Or is that just something you kept to yourself? I think I, no, I kept it to myself. Um, no, I think it wasn't until much, 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 much later. And as an adult, um, and I would ask people, you know that song? And they would have no idea what I was talking about. Um, and it always kind of surprises me because it's such an indelible mark in my brain. It always surprises me when people don't know it or mm -hmm. haven't haven't heard it. Um, but I no, I don't remember. I don't remember saying, "Hey, gotta check out this song." Um, I think it was it's just this kind of personal interior thing. The, this other uh, uh, this a movie on this list uh, is radically different than. Well, either The Cosby Show or Strange Fruit. Uh, and I've never seen this movie. I confess that to you, but I've heard about it. You have a lot of homework. I got to listen to Susie Sue. You know, I got to go watch remakes of the, of the old Huxtable. Uh, the Hunger, 1983 yes. flick directed by Tony Scott, starring David Bowie. Yes. David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve are vampires who are, and Susan Sarandon. Susan Sarandon is also in it. Mm -hmm. Um, and the lead and the opening sequence has Peter Murphy of Bauhaus singing Bella Lugosi's Dead um, behind this sort of, you know, cage in this nightclub thing. And um, it was just like the coolest and sexiest movie I had ever seen. Um, and it was this epitome of, of, of gothness of vampires and Bowie and Bauhaus <laughs> in one one film. Um, uh, and I remember me and my friend Sarah, this is in Detroit, we traveled far, far into the suburbs somewhere to some video store to find like one copy, one VHS tape that we knew was at this one store somewhere. Um, uh, so we rented it and just wore the crap out of it. Just watched it over and over and over again. Um, yeah, loved it. Is, is there any, any any black person in that movie at all? 
No, not that I recall. No. And that just spoke to you? Um, yeah. I mean, I think um, there weren't really, there were very few black, except Prince. Yeah, Prince, I would say Prince and Grace Jones were the two um, sort of black icons of kind of, of alternativeness mm-hmm. um, that I could look at, look to as a kind of reference point, you know. Um, they both had this kind of gender fluidity to it. Um, you know, Grace Jones seems so kind of, uh, kind of like foreign and cool and sophisticated. Um, and Prince, again, was just sex, 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 but also kind of feminine. Um, and also, uh, yeah, I Let, think. Yeah. Let's talk about Prince for a moment. Oh. Um, like when I think of Prince, Prince reminds me so much, and he was clearly he was influenced so much by Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, and I, that's I mean obviously a little bit before your time, obviously, but you probably at least seen. Oh yeah. Before, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and yet my sense of it was that Prince was far more popular among black people mm. than Jimi Hendrix was. Huh. What I mean, do you, yeah. What do you think of that? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I so think- why? I mean, maybe because Prince was more soul. Maybe it was a little more R and B, um, and Jimi Hendrix was more kind of straight rock and roll or something. I'm not quite. I'm not quite sure, but maybe that's it. Um, and Prince was very his music was very. It was black music, you know, without a doubt. Um, so I think maybe that's why. I mean, I kind of don't. I know almost nothing about Jimi Hendrix. I was never really a Hendrix fan. But, um, you know, Prince's music was, you know, straight from, you know, Motown and beyond. Um, Yeah. And so as part of this phase, uh, when you were watching Hunger, The Hunger, uh, and you were uh, gothed out, you were listening to Prince. Yeah. And I remember when Purple Rain came out and uh, my friends memorizing that movie like word for word and being so jealous because a friend of mine's father worked for Motown and got backstage passes and met Prince and the revolution. And I was incredibly jealous. (laughs) I am too. Uh, So did you ever see Prince in concert? Once. Um, Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, Sort of ultimate, ultimate performer. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that Prince made it easier for kids like yourself to embrace whatever identity they wanted? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Yeah, and I don't even know if even at the time I was thinking Prince can be that way. Also, Prince is a man, and I was a girl. So I think that there, I think sometimes it's, I think that's more pressure sometimes for women, mm-hmm. especially young girls, to be a certain thing. Um, I can always say that for myself as a girl, but um, so I don't know if I was thinking consciously I, I could be like Prince and do whatever I want. Um, but having that around in my consciousness, having a black man who looked different mm-hmm. and was so commanding and powerful and um, 
he's so in control um, that all of his differences made him the superstar that he was and the supreme talent that he was. Um, and there's nobody, there's nobody like him or was like him or David Bowie. You had the same feeling about Bowie when you watched his music? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did you ever see that? Uh, were you into Bowie? Bef- like he went through that black phase of David Bowie. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, like um, the um, like in the eighties, that kind of. I soul. think it was a seventies thing. Yeah. Uh, don't quote me, and I I can't remember what year, but he um, he did a song. Um, oh, it's Young Americans. It's called. Oh yeah. And uh, um, I think it may be. That or fame actually yeah. crossed over and was popular on black radio stations. Yeah, yeah, One yeah. or the other. I can't remember which that's one. A great, that's a great song. Uh, right? And uh, so did you like that phase of David Bowie or just like everything about David Bowie? Oh, I love that. I love that about David Bowie. But I also didn't think of it as a black phase. I mean, again, I think the music that I liked, I wasn't so um, specific to, to genre. It really was, I liked whatever I kind of liked. Um, so if I also at the time, I don't think I was really young enough and aware enough to think, oh, these are the R and B influences that David Bowie is using in this particular song. You know, Mm -hmm. I just liked it, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, um, yeah, I kind of, it didn't really, it didn't really matter to me what his, um, what his color was, you know? Uh, and of course, the final one you had in the list, uh, "Beloved" by Toni Morrison. Yes, the novel. Yeah, um, that is. There's a chapter in the book I call um, "Based on a True Story," um, which is about this sort of trope in horror movies or in horror in general of this hint that the story might be true to add to this sort of terror, or add to the you know the suspense. Um, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It starts off with, this was a real event, you know? Um, so the book, Beloved, um, is about a woman who um, had killed her daughter, was a runaway slave, and escaped, and um, killed her daughter to avoid um, her daughter getting put back into captivity. And that daughter kind of rises from the grave 18 years later as an adult to haunt her and haunt this house. Um, And that story is based on a true story um, of this woman, Margaret Garner, who escaped a plantation in Kentucky and ran away to Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, slave catchers were after her and she killed her daughter to prevent her and to save her from a life um, as a slave. Um, so this, and Beloved is a haunted house story. It is a classic haunted house story told through the lens of a slave narrative and told through the lens of black history, which is, which like Strange Fruit is another reason why I put it in that kind of canon of black goth, um, material. Um, it's a horror story. It's a haunted house story, a ghost story with its origins in actual real lived experiences of black people. Um, and I, there are times when it, it's a hard book to read. There are times when I read it and I was like, I was, I, I was like, I'm afraid to turn the page. There are scenes in it that are so 
haunting and raw and real. Um, and knowing that there were scenes like that in the book that probably actually happened in real life mm-hmm. um, makes it even more horrifying. Knowing that even though it's a book of fiction that's about, you know, a kind of ghost or a kind of, a, you know, zombie baby spirit and, you know, in the, in the you know, haunting of that, it's based on this real, real horror and real truth mm-hmm. that makes it so powerful. It's a hard book to read also. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's hard book to read. It's not like a tr- traditional, you know. The the, the narrative kind of goes back and forth in time. Uh, it's not always clear if what you're seeing is real or imagined. And uh, I, it's a challenging book. This is a tangent within a tangent, yeah. uh, but it's a challenging book. And uh, you know. I see it's on a lot of lists in high schools these days. Yeah. I always get a little nervous about that, not because of the subject matter, but because if you, there are some kids who are really precocious and it sounds like, you know, you may have been one of them. And uh, we had, an, I had a, fr- uh, a friend who comes to the show all the time, Maya, uh, talked about how influential that book was to her mm. when she was, I think, a junior in high school or something like that and how it opened up. Uh, but you have to be, you have to be, have a certain amount of sophistication, like, brain power. I don't know how else yeah. to call it to be able to like figure it out. And I, you know, l- yeah. without a teacher to lead you through and explain, okay, now on this one, they're going back in time. And yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, I don't even think I read it in school. I don't think it was assigned to me in school. Now that I'm thinking about it, I probably, I read it on, on my own. own. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it's one of those where you kind of have to be in the right mindset <laughs> to absorb it. And so these are all sort of the things that came together to make uh, Layla Taylor the person who she is. The name of the book is Darkly, Black History and America's Gothic Soul. Uh, you live in Brooklyn now, mm-hmm. but you're in Chicago and it's too late to promote it for this podcast, but you'll be uh, giving a reading tonight, Friday the 22nd. Mm-hmm. Just give a shout out to yep. the bookstore. The Seminary a, Co-op. In Hyde Park. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and I, if there's any way I could beam this back in time to encourage people <laughs> to show up, uh, I urge them to do. I didn't even get to ask you my Kanye West question. Uh-oh. Uh oh. Because I've been thinking a lot about. Well, I'm gonna ask it to you anyway. See, yeah. see how you squirm and duck and dodge this one. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, I've been thinking a lot about this for a long time for a lot of different reasons. But uh, you know, we talked about the line between a black and white. So Kanye just like drove a truck through that uh, line when he put on a MAGA hat, sat down with Donald <sighs> Trump. And, and then said he was the, the one who was liberated and everybody else was on the plantation. Yeah. And he was the one uh, who was free and everybody else was still in chains. It's amazing what money can do. Yeah, I think right. uh, that was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard in my life. And it's one of those where it's like, you're so removed from whatever... Uh, reality that your fans or the rest of the world is living in. Um, I mean, he's a, a narcissist to a millionth degree, you know. Um, but he's also the one who said, you know, uh, George Bush doesn't care about black people after Katrina. <laughs> I. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting how people who consider themselves either, you know, liberal or 
you know, aware, um, change really quick once their um, bank accounts get to a certain level. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Zuckerberg's meeting with Trump very comfortably. You talk about Mark Zuckerberg yeah. now, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's a whole other story. That's a whole other thing. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's be- yeah. Don't get me started. Right. Remember, you said I told you it's a political <laughs> talk show. Mark Zuckerberg wants to undercut uh, Elizabeth Warren because he's worried that she's going to enact legislation that would break up this cartel he has or right. this control. Right. So now he's going to cut deals with Trump, yeah. who and is going to open up Facebook to whatever lie Trump. Yeah puts up there see yeah. well you got me going on politics here well he didn't t- get in the kanye church thing and that whole like sunday service stuff yeah where he was at claude <laughs> austin's church last uh was it last weekend i can't remember yeah. lost track of time uh it's a, a a very um little interesting uh sermon that kanye west is preaching these days anyway you didn't i give you credit you didn't duck or dodge you handled the question <laughs> you could be a regular on this show uh anyway well thank you very much for uh taking the time to come on your very busy schedule you've been running i know john's got you running from uh, pillar to post <laughs> in the city of chicago uh, and uh, one more time, Layla Taylor. Uh, and the name of the book is Darkly Black History and America's Gothic Soul. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you for having me. This has been great. All right. That's another bonus show on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Take care, everybody. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.